Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. This is Charles W. Chuck Bryant. This is William Shatner. <laughs> you have the sound of a man who sounds like he's leaving town. I do. This and, comes and up a lot. A few short hours. Right now that I think about it. It is a weekend. Yeah. I'm leaving town, too. Nice. Where we, are you going? I'm going to see my sister cool. and my two nieces. Yeah. Uh, my brother-in-law is not there, but uh, in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Very nice. At the U.S. Marine Corps base. Very nice. You're going to go to the PX? Camp Lejeune, I think. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'll go to the PX. You should get some stuff there. It's all like at a, at a military discount. Yeah, I'll buy just, some uh, camo and ammo. Just uh, walk like you're supposed to be in there, you know, right. maybe make eye contact with everybody, try to wither them, and they'll be like, oh, he's a soldier. No, no. I, I'm, I always stand out like a sore thumb on the military bases. Yeah. They're like, who's the fat, hairy guy? <laughs> yeah. Why is he here, and should I kill him? So uh, are you excited? Yeah, I haven't seen my sister in a while. That's good. What about you? What you got going on? Uh, we are going to New York, you, me, and I, um, for friend's wedding. Great. Two friend's wedding. Two male friend's wedding. Hey. Yeah. Awesome. And it's official now. Congratulations to yeah. those guys. Yeah. Uh, Mitch and Patrick, we, uh, our friends on the Facebook page, tried to help them out. They were like uh, in a contest for Crate and Barrel uh, really? wedding oh, that's right. sweepstakes. Yeah. And they a win? lot of people showed up and bumped them from like... Number 20-something, they're like, number one for a little while, and then they just got crushed. Ah. So hats off to everybody on our Facebook page who helped them out. They are very grateful. And huzzah to them. Yes, huzzah, indeed. Uh, Best wishes from Stuff You Should Know from Mitch and Patrick, eh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so Chuck, you want to get down to this? Yes, how Gene Simmons works. (laughs) Or Gene Shalit. Gene Ween. Gene Siskel. Gene Krupa. Well, and with Gene Krupa. <laughs> okay. Gene Patents really is what we're talking about, right? Yes. So very Chuck, interesting. I have I I agree. Interesting and terrifying. Yeah. Um. And by the way, uh, I just want to go ahead and say that there is a documentary, a companion documentary that's required viewing for this one. It's called The Corporation. Uh, if you have Netflix, it's streaming on Netflix. You can also order it, the DVD or whatever, but you could watch it literally right the second. It's probably all over YouTube, too. It's like one of those docs. Yeah. Very well made. Good stuff. But I still haven't seen that. It touches on a lot of stuff in here uh-huh. and just goes into greater depth. So I say check out the corporation. It's a good documentary either way. Um, but uh, let me let me give you a little story here. All right. There is a condition. It can be congenital. It can actually be acquired, strangely enough, although I didn't find out how. But it's called um, growth hormone deficiency, right? Okay. And basically, it just means that you are short. You're smaller in stature um, than uh, is average, right? Sure. Maybe you're smaller than the rest of your family members. Who knows? But the, the, the point is, is your pituitary glands aren't producing enough growth hormone. Is that like Emmanuel Lewis? I imagine that he has some sort of growth hormone deficiency. I think it's an umbrella term. Gotcha. But yes. Um, the the good thing is, is it's treatable, and it's been treatable for a while, and we knew for a very long time where to get the treatment, where to get human growth hormone. Okay. And that was extracting it from the pituitary glands of cadavers. 
Cool. Up until the 70s, <laughs> if you had growth hormone deficiency and you were given injections, the stuff they were injecting you with was extracted from cadavers' pituitary glands. But it was still good to go? It obviously. was. It, it worked, yeah. Wow. Um, and, but it was very, very expensive. I mean, the extraction process, getting your hands on a dead body. I sure. mean, there's a lot of factors involved. Uh, and then in, in the, until the 1980s, when uh, a company called Novo Nordisk uh, got a patent for a product called Nano, Nanormon. Nanormon. <laughs> yeah. It's just a mouthful. Uh, that it had created in 1973, but it didn't get a patent until 1982. Couldn't they just call it Go Juice? <laughs> yeah, you know, or Grow Juice. That be that would be much more appropriate, right? Okay, we'll figure that out later. So the history to me is is one of the most interesting parts here, and we'll we'll get to 1982, which was a landmark year in this uh, field. But let's back up, Josh. Yes. Let's what? use the Wayback Machine because we haven't done that in a while. Oh wow, it has been a while. Right? There's a cobweb in here. <laughs> there is. Ooh, it's musty. Uh. Somebody's been eating cheese, too. Yeah, there's, like, wrappers here. Processed cheese. Interesting. Uh, so let's go back in time. There were three three rulings uh, over the years, starting in 1853, that sort of led to what we're talking about, but they weren't consistent. They sort of flip-flopped on the subject. Uh, in 1853, Robert Morse, of the Telegraph fame, mm-hmm. was initially denied his patent because part of it, involved electromagnetism, a key part of it. Right. And they said, you can't patent electromagnetism. No. Why? Silly boy. Because it's a uh, principle of nature. Right. It's like, uh, uh, I my device uses that cloud right there, so I'm going to patent that cloud. Right. Like, you can't patent a cloud. Well, what about the process that makes clouds? No, you can't. It's nature. That's natural. You can't patent nature. And this was back when the U.S. Patent Office was the God-fearing U.S. Patent Office, and they knew what to issue patents for and what not to. Not the crazy, cuckoo, (laughs) mixed-up patent office of today. That's right. Uh, Where you can patent thoughts and dreams. Might as well. I'm patenting you, Chuck. I actually own that already. Oh, okay. And you owe me $10 for even saying that. (laughs) Uh, So, following that, uh, the second ruling in 1912... Another court ruled that uh, you could patent adrenaline because it's a distilled type of adrenaline that was treated in a lab outside the body, yeah. and it was different than the natural adrenaline inside the body. Right. Then after World War II, another ruling reversed it again, and the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court said, I'm sorry, you cannot patent this uh, mixture of bacteria. Mm-hmm. That, was, that you're making in your lab. Right. Even though that's a living it thing. doesn't exist in nature. Yeah. And this would later become a, a real touchstone in this argument. Like, does this exist in nature? Like, that cloud right there. Sure. Uh, you, 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 it's natural. You can't patent it. Right. But could you patent a process or a cloud that you could create in the lab that nature doesn't produce and maybe isn't capable of producing? That's where it gets hairy. Yeah. Uh, another big step forward was the Plant Patent Act of 1930. Yeah. Uh, thanks to a dude named Luther Burbank, which is a pretty rocking name, I it think. It is. Oh, that, that's my new hotel name. Luther Burbank. Yeah. It's pretty cool for a, you know, early 20th century white dude. Yeah. Uh, he was a botanist and he created more than 800 strains and varieties of plants, including the Shasta Daisy, the Fire Poppy, and the White Blackberry. I'm a fan of the Shasta Daisy. Yeah? Yeah. Well, you have Luther Luther Burbank Burbank. to thank. I see him wearing four-fingered rings. Oh, yeah. That says Luth. (laughs) Yeah. Or Shasta. Uh, So he was obviously, uh, you know, pretty inspired to create plants, and they said, you know what? (laughs) 
that's pretty neato that you can do all this stuff, so you should be allowed to. We're going to pass this plant act. But don't even try to patent bacteria. Again, there's a problem with bacteria that the court has always traditionally disallowed. Apparently, they consider bacteria more natural life than a, a hybrid plant. It's true because of the next case, and that plant pa- that plant patent act, um, really that's that is a big deal, even just beyond like what we're talking about. Yeah, and we'll get to that later, like what effects that that has had. Siege. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was also a plant protection act of 1970 that also allowed patents as well. But again, this allowed bacteria. Bacteria keeps getting kicked around, kicked around, kicked around. Yeah, until 1980. Right? Was that uh, Diamond v. Chakrabarty? Yeah. Yes. Ananda Chakrabarty worked for GE, mm-hmm. developed a bacterium that could break down crude oil, and said, hey, we should use this for oil spills. Yeah, very useful. Great idea. Uh, the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals, uh, I'm sorry, it was initially rejected, and then the Customs and Patent Appeals Office overturned that, right? saying that uh, the fact that it's alive has no significant purpose in our patent office. Right. And also you left out that the that Chakrabodhi um created a bacteria that didn't exist in nature. Oh, it was it was brand new. It was recombinant. He made it himself. That's pretty cool. Yes. Uh but then the so Supreme he, he Court was God to this bacteria. Right. Uh the Supreme Court then argued the case and in nineteen eighty uh Warren Berger wrote that Whoever invents, and this is very key moving forward, mm-hmm. whoever invents or discovers any new and useful process machine manufacture or, and this is the key, composition of matter or any new and useful improvement thereof may obtain a patent, therefore, subject to the blah, 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 blah. Ergo, ipsum, facto. But composition of matter is the key three words there. Right. There's a big difference between a product of nature or a principle of nature and the composition of matter, which could be anything from, you know, using uh, two types of metal to create an alloy or uh, insulin. creating two types of DNA to yeah. create, yeah, something like insulin. Um, and by the way, diamond in Diamond v. Chakrabarty is diamond was the um, the head of the yeah. patents office. So when you he fought against it, yeah, he yeah. he sued him to be like, no, you, this is this is wrong. Wouldn't you feel like you were in trouble if the if the head of the patents office was right. suing you? Yeah, like it just seems worse, you know. But he won, Sidney yeah. Diamond. And that changed everything. Um, within two years, the first patent for um, the first gene patent, what we would call a gene patent, um, was issued to the University of California. Go Bears. Yeah, for um, a, uh, a hormone engineered to, to I guess, to, for milk production. I'm not sure. I know it was involved in breast cancer treatment, but I don't know exactly what it did. I gotcha. Um, and then the uh, the same year, insulin was patented, recombinant insulin, which was huge. Also, so that was the same year that Novo Nordisk got its patent for um, n- Nanormon. Nanormon. <laughs> so clunky. The, uh, Grow the juice. human growth hormone yeah. product. Yeah. So um, that really just kind of opened up the floodgate. Chakrabodhi yeah. changed everything. And that, that shows up in the corporation, too. It's pretty interesting how they talk about that. Oh, really? Um, and But really, I guess as far as gene patents go, the real moment when everything changed mm-hmm. was in the late 90s when this little-known group at the time popped up 
uh, in the media and said, hey, we're almost finished entirely mapping the human genome. And the U.S. Patent Office workers went, eep. And there was a flood <laughs> of uh, patent requests, right? One was for Pandora Radio. <laughs> right, yeah. Wasn't that based on that, the Music Genome Project? Was it? I think so. I would imagine if that's what they called it. Or inspired by it, at least. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everyone lined up all of a sudden. was like, ooh, patent this, patent that, patent right. this. They'd be like, I heard about this gene. I want to patent it. I want to patent this one. And so right. they, they were inundated with it. And so in 2001, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the USPTO, um, issued new guidelines saying, okay, yes, anybody can apply for a patent, but you have to know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you have exactly. to know, you have to know what the gene does, or you have to have come up with some process, um, using this gene. There's, there's, there, there has to be criteria, everybody. Everybody Incredible shut up. use. Yeah, yeah. There has to be criteria. Sure. Um, and that definitely, um, allowed some of the, the, the high, there was a high water mark and the, the, um, tide ebbed. A little bit. A little bit. But currently, uh, I believe, which was the initial stat, there are, uh, three to five thousand human gene patents. Yep. Right now. In the U.S. alone. Yeah. Forty-seven thousand involving, uh, inventions like equipment involving genetic material. Or insulin is another example. Yeah, true. It's an invention using genetic material. But there are more than three million on file as applicants. Yeah, like, so, like patent all. pending. Sure. Yeah. So, um, and that's with the the tide ebbing. I hope I hope it's ebbing. And I think, I think it's that's coming back out, right? Just in the United States again, isn't it? Yeah, in the United States, um, and there's plenty in Europe and Japan. It's basically Europe, Japan, and the U.S. are the leaders in issuing patents for this kind of stuff. Like, basically, if you want to push the rest of the world around, you go get a patent at one of one of these areas, right? Patent offices, right? So uh, well, let's talk specifically about the U.S., right? Um, let's talk patents. Yeah, if you want to get a patent, you have to you have to meet some criteria. Um, it doesn't matter what the patent's for, whether it's for the dippy bird or you know <laughs> for yeah. human growth hormone. Um, and so for any any invention to get a patent to be approved for a patent. Um, it has to meet four criteria, right? It has to be useful. Mm-hmm. It has to be non-obvious, right? Like it can't be a shoestring. I don't know. I would what have non. What would an obvious one be? I wonder. An obvious invention would be. Um, man, I don't know. I'm just curious. Maybe using peppermint to to um, fight bad breath. <laughs> Maybe. So obvious. Yeah, that's obvious. Sure. Anybody can do that. You can't patent that. There you go. There's our non-obvious <laughs> okay. example. Um, it has to be novel, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and it has to meet the enablement criterion, which is a big deal. And this is pretty much the whole reason patents exist. One of the big reasons. Yeah, it's got to have detail. It can't be just a big, broad, esoteric thing. It's got to be detailed enough where someone in that field can... Figure it out and use it. Right, and this is this is one of the major reasons the patent office exists. It's to say, okay, thank you for sharing your findings with the rest of the world. We're going to give you twenty years of exclusivity. Yeah, but in return, you're you're being totally transparent. Here's mm-hmm. all of the process. Here's all the notes. Here's anything yeah. that anybody working in your field can can 
look at and use to build upon your research. Or but they have to it. pay you. Well, but can they gank it and change it enough to where it doesn't we, you can, and those are called patent trolls. And apparently they're a big problem right now. Really? They're, they're thwarting technology. I think Tech Stuff did something on patent trolls recently. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you, if you are issued a patent, you get 20 years of exclusivity. Yeah. Nobody can uh, use it, uh, um, market it, sell it, anything that has to do with your invention or process unless they pay you. They have to go through you and you license it and reap the benefits, right? Yeah, and the reason it was such a mad rush when the genome project was first completed because obviously the first person to invent something gets the patent. So yeah. if you can prove that, then that's yours for 20 years. So Well, that's based on the first to invent principle. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So you have to prove that. And then after that, you've got it for 20 years, and everyone was in a big rush to be the first with these gene patents. Have you heard the story of um, Alexander Graham Bell and Elijah... What was his name? You mean the real guy who invented the telephone? Yeah, what's his name? <laughs> oh, is that the case? Yeah. I knew there was some stink there, but I, I wasn't sure. Um, Elijah Gray. Apparently, Elijah Gray invented a telephone that yeah, looked and that. worked way, way more like the the ones we use today. It was a cell or, phone, actually. I should say the ones we used in the used in the seventies and eighties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It wasn't a cell phone, but you know the kind, the, the rotary dial, all that. Um, but Alexander Graham Bell. Beat him to the patent office. Yeah, and um, now did he steal his ideas or was it just? Concurrent? I think it was independent. Okay, um, and I can't remember what that's called, but there's there's, a, than- there's an idea that like you know oh the zeitgeist right that we're all you know ideas kind of float out there for anybody to to latch onto and sometimes people do independently. I wonder how far apart they were from each other in being completed and like I wonder if it was literally like. My horse fell sick that day, and I couldn't make it to the office. Um, but I, Bell did. I, I don't remember how how close it was, but I'm it, sure was, it wasn't that close. It was pretty close. Um, so uh, the the patent office has this first to invent principle, where it's not necessarily like uh, who beat who to the patent office. It's if you have a situation like that, who's been working on this longer, or who reached a, a yeah. landmark longer, and then that's who gets the patent. Yeah, that's why there was, like you said, that mad rush because. You know, it's like, oh, I noticed this first, so right. let me go ahead and get my patent in. Well, and with the case of, like, insulin or any any of these gene patents, really, you can't just say, like, oh, I got this thing. Like, you, they have to have it on file, which is something I never knew. There are 26 culture depositories around the world, mm-hmm. thanks to, and this is such a mouthful, thanks to the Budapest Treaty on the International Recognition of the Deposit of Microorganisms, for the purpose of patent procedure. So basically, it's like a repository where you send in your sample, right? Yeah. Isn't that the way I understand it? Right. right. Um, and there's 26 of them worldwide, right? Yeah, and if it is a uh, a, a product of, uh, if it's something you remove from, from the body and processed, the patent only applies to the very end result that you send in. Right. Not like the little stages along the way. Although you can patent that. Those stages. Yeah, but they just have to be independent of one another. Right. Yeah. All right. So um, you, you've, you've submitted your sample to a depository. You have applied for the patent. It's been issued. You're good to go. Um, what are you patenting? Right? Like, I think there's a huge misunderstanding among the public yeah. that you're walking around and there's some company owns the the rights to your genes 
True or false? False. That is false. Okay. I mean, a gene patent is kind of a misnomer. It's a pretty big misnomer, actually, sure. because there's certain criteria that have to be meet, met. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you have natural, um, what is it? Natural matter. Mm-hmm. Um, is it? Is that what it's called, or something of nature? Composition well, of nature. Yeah, your yeah, genes yeah. are a composition of nature in mm-hmm. your body. To patent something, you have to extract genes and get them to do like a, you know, jump through a flaming hoop outside of the body. Then you have something called composition of matter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so what are some of the things that people are, are ma- getting gene patents for? Well, it breaks down, my friend, into four categories, pretty much. Uh, you want to go one at a time? Yeah. For a change? <laughs> Diagnostics. That means uh, they're looking to patent a method, basically. Generally, it tests for genetic differences, abnormalities, uh Spotting genetic markers in cancer, Alzheimer's, stuff like that. Right. Pretty nice way to use your time, I think. It is, but it's also very controversial, as we'll see in a little bit. It, this all, Well, not all of it is, but three of the four are. Right. And with diagnostics, what you're patenting is, in fact, the gene that you're looking at, or the genes involved. Yeah. And the, um, the mutations, right? So you have a bunch of different possible mutations. That's what for complicates cancer. it for sure. Yeah. Right. But a very sharp company. And, and by the way, by saying you need to know what you're talking about or you need to have put some sort of, um, research into this, mm-hmm. basically excluded schmoes like you and I from getting gene patents and just said huge laboratories, huge corporations are yeah. the only ones who can possibly get gene patents now. Yeah. Um, so if you have a very sharp laboratory, a very sharp cor- corporation, they're going to have a patent for every possible mutation. Right. For a specific gene. And then ultimately what they're patenting is the screening process, the test yeah, kit. exactly. Used to evaluate these mutations. So that's number one. Uh, functional use is the second. That is pretty much just uh, discovering roles played by genes. Uh, they're usually issued for drugs that affect the functioning of the genes. Yeah. So I guess insulin would be that. Uh, no, insulin is composition of matter. Okay. So functional use would be like okay. we understand that this mutation on this gene causes this to happen. So we're going to create a drug that yeah. makes the gene act normally, express normally, right. something like that. And that's the that's the future of um, pharmaceuticals is genetically tailored drugs. Because right now, when you take a drug. Right, Tylenol or something. Yeah, you're just throwing something in the in the wind and hoping it works, right? With yeah. Genetically tailored drugs, it's like it's they'll look me. at your genetic composition yeah. and then say, "Well, this is the drug you need, and it will work 98 percent of the time." Right. And it will work 100 percent effectively. And that's 98 percent of the time. Hundred thousand dollars, please make exactly. the check out to Merck. Exactly. <laughs> uh, process is the third type of patent uh, in this category, and that's pretty easy. That's basically protecting a method. Uh, by which the genes are extracted or manipulated, and it's the least controversial yeah. out of all these because it's not, it's a more traditional kind of patent. Right. This is like science. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have composition of matter. That's so, the big one. Co- yeah. Composition of matter and diagnostics are the two most controversial. Composition of matter is like human growth hormone, insulin, yeah. stuff that saves lives. Um, and. But it's an invention, quote unquote. It is. I mean, like creating human growth hormone using E. coli to string together amino acids, that's an invention. And yeah. it's hats off to you. Sure. 
so what's what's the controversy? What's the problem with gene patents? With itch, issuing twenty years of exclusivity to somebody who you know teaches E. coli to string together amino acids? Well, there's a couple of uh, different controversies. One, the the ethical and social and economic. And the other is the legal. As far as legal goes, if you're against it, you're going to argue that, dude, these are your genes. There is nothing more natural mm-hmm. than the genes in your body. Right. So, of course, you can't patent them. And, and it doesn't matter what you do to them. Like, it's still based on this product of nature. Yeah. That it, just leave it alone. Like, this should be, this This is the heritage of humankind. Yeah. It's us. It's what makes us us. Of course, we shouldn't be issuing patents to corporations. On genes. Yeah. Say say the um, critics of gene patents. <laughs> right. Uh, proponents would say, hey, dude, if we can extract this from the body and manipulate it many times to the point where it's not even the same as before, mm-hmm. then of course you should be able to patent that. Right. And and that's one of the reasons why we have patents is to reward innovation, to reward very smart people and to encourage more yeah. innovation and research and things that save lives. Like, So you don't have to extract exactly. growth hormone from the pituitary glands of the dead. Uh, uh, myriad genetics. Should we talk about that? It's a good yeah. example. This is a big one. Uh, they filed seven patents relating to uh, RCA1 and BRCA2. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they developed was a test kit for breast and ovarian cancer. Right, and these these two um, genes account for I think like fifteen percent of breast or ovarian cancer. I think breast cancer. Right. So it's pretty substantial, and uh, Myriad got a patent on the screening kit that they created, and they promptly turned around and sent letters to just about every cancer screening laboratory (laughs) in the world, right? And said, hey, we hear that you guys are saving people's lives. That's awesome. Keep up the good work. Just make sure that you send all of your cancer screening when it relates to these two genes to us, and we'll do it, and we're going to charge you for it. Right. And uh, throughout the world, people in laboratories threw these letters up in the air and, and clucked their tongues and stroked their beards in anger and <laughs> strutted about their flasks. And right. and in Canada, it was just overtly ignored. The Canadian government itself stepped in and was like, you don't need to listen to these crackpots. Eh? Um, in uh, Europe, it was very controversial. I think it's largely ignored. So it's upheld, I think. In the U.S., because this was the country that issued the patent, but elsewhere they're like, we're not listening to you. And th- for a long time, Myriad didn't do anything. There wasn't any lawsuits. Right. Uh, and then there was one. And in 2010, the company um, was the, turned down. Yeah. Well, the U.S. District Court said no. Yeah. We're not. We're not going to support this. And then in 2011, Court of Appeal for the Federal Circuit overturned that lower court's decision. So yeah. it went up one step higher, mm-hmm. and Myriad got satisfaction. They got myriad satisfaction. Yeah. Do you know that means 30,000? It's an actual number. Myriad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like decimate is 10%. Right. But uh, this is one that I'm I'm on the side of people using it correctly because I can't stand it when someone says, like, I had a myriad of. Yeah. When it's supposed to be. Just myriad. Myriad. I had 30,000 coughs. See, that's where I disagree with the 30,000 part. Yeah. Like, say it correctly, but... Come on. Or you could just say, like, I had a myriad of coughs and then wink <laughs> afterward. Like, I know what I'm talking about. I'm just using honk, a different honk. way. Exactly. Pull my finger. Yeah. So the myriad case continues. I did, I did like when it was initially ruled against the uh, the ruling judge. He sounded sort of like a, 
who was uh, Andy Griffith's judge character or no lawyer character? Matlock. Matlock. It's no. a that's a lawyer's trick. Yeah, is what he called it. Yeah, Quote, and then they, lawyer's trick. Yeah, the Supreme Court said no, it's not a trick. Yeah, they modified it. Your Honor, I don't know spit about lawyering, <laughs> but I do know the human heart. Yeah, <laughs> I never saw that show. I didn't either, but there was a good Saturday Night Live uh, okay. send up of it. Yeah, of course, it was. Phil Hartman did. Uh, R.I.P. Phil Hartman. Yeah. So, ethical social challenges and controversies. This is where it gets hot. Yeah, and I guess we should say, like, we just kind of left it, like, myriads up in the air. That's the standard for what's going on in the U.S. right now as far as gene patents go. And that was just a few months ago. The patent office is honoring its obligations, and then the courts are, people are suing people, and the courts are just going all over the place. Yeah. So, it's just totally up in the air whether or not this is going to be allowed or what kind of standards we'll eventually sure. adopt. We're in the heat of this. Yeah, we are. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about ethical, the ethics of this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of along the same lines in a way as the legal challenges because proponents are going to say, you know, this this is great for research. If you don't, if you don't allow this, then companies aren't going to be able to make a profit from this, so there's going to be no incentive if to, to continue this kind of research. Research right. is going to stop. And this research is important. Like, you can say what you will about Myriad, but their screening test saves lives, yeah, right? absolutely. Uh, it's, and if they invented it, then th- this sort of breaks down almost into private sector capitalism versus... Because if the private sector dried up because they couldn't make any money off this stuff, all right. the research would be left to government-funded laboratories, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's very much divided among capitalist socialist lines, and I think though that people who normally wouldn't consider themselves socialist are falling into the critics camp. Yeah, just from the just the idea of you know having gene patents out there, it's it, it is something that I think a lot of people think should just belong to all humankind. But the the free market proponents do make a pretty good case sure. that you know if uh, that. If you don't reward innovation and invention and and clever monetarily, yeah, de- techniques monetarily, yeah. then you have a problem. On the other side, though, you can say, well, you're also issuing monopolies on things that like True. are life saving yeah. that a company can charge whatever they want. Like, what will you pay to find out? You know, f- whether you have cancer, right, right, or what will you pay for a drug that? will get rid of your cancer, right. you, Chuck Bryant, because we know your genetic makeup and we know that this will work perfectly with your genetic makeup. How much will you pay for that? And we're the only company you can get it from. I'd pay everything I had. Yes, you would. You know, And so would you know every other person who had the same or similar genetic makeup as you, which uh, is problematic. Yeah, it is. And also, if it, if it cures your cancer, but then three weeks later your head explodes, but... It doesn't happen in everybody. That company has zero incentive to make its product so that it doesn't make, you know, 30% of people's heads explode. Right. Because it has a monopoly. What are you going to do? You're still going to buy this thing. Yeah. Right? Another argument for uh, is that at least what this process does is creates transparency in research. Yeah. It's all out there. Everybody knows. There's People might not be wasting their time duplicating research, A. Yeah, that's and a big one. B. Uh, People can build on your research, and it will propel it further into the future. Should. Pretty good argument there. Yeah, but you can understand why this is not a cut-and-dried 
argument. Well, the AMA says we know likey. Yeah, the AMA is saying like that this won't help uh, support research. Right. The American Medical Association. It's saying that um, it will inhibit uh, research on genetic disease, uh, and basically, even worse than that, it will inhibit um, access for the average person. So. I want to give an example of what is at stake here, okay? Yes. So we've kind of seen, like, you know, you, the, this kind of the, this kind of reward does propel innovation and in research, right? Yes. But there's this, um, with the Plant Act of 1930 mm-hmm. um, that allowed people to, to genetically modify plants. Luther Burbank. Yeah. Um, and then get patents for those. There's a company called Monsanto. And Monsanto came up with this idea called um, genetic use restriction technology. It's um, also known as terminator technology, where (laughs) they have figured out how to insert a gene, basically a suicide gene, into its seeds. It's genetically modified seeds, right? For second-gen seeds. Yes. So for the first-generation seed, your plant will just grow like normal, Mm -hmm. like a normal genetically modified organism, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it will produce seeds, yeah. But those seeds it produces are sterile because yeah. it has a gene in it that that won't allow it to produce seeds that can be used again. This means that you have to go to Monsanto to buy their seeds. You can't hoard their seeds and replant next year. Every year you have to go and buy their seeds. Right. This is fine and dandy for very wealthy farmers in the West, but no matter where you are in the world, if you want to grow this, you know, um, cricket resistant type of wheat that Monsanto owns a patent on, you got to buy it from Monsanto, and you have to buy it every year, right. no matter how, what you can afford or can't. Yeah. And basically, there's a really good argument that you should not be allowed to to own a patent, a license, on uh, a, a process as natural as a plant producing offspring, producing seeds. Right. So that's one example that a lot of people point to as like a cautionary tale well, they, for yeah. for against gene patents. They did not, Monsanto did not, they still hold this. They didn't release it and say, this is what we're doing. No, they actually vowed to not do that. Yeah, they said, we won't do it, but you got to sign this agreement if you do business with us or we'll start releasing this. Right, right? and the I agreement mean, says that you won't reuse seeds that you get from their genetically modified plants. And didn't they buy up the company that was originally uh, Delta and Pineland Company? Mm-hmm. They ended up buying them up, didn't they? Yes, and they they this company has said has vowed the opposite that they're going to start using that Terminator gene commercially. Oh, they have. Yeah. Oh, so okay. a lot of people are very nervous about whether or not that genetic use restriction technology will come into play. But it, I mean, it's already effectively in play. We should do a Monsanto uh, podcast. That would be explosive. <laughs> it would be very explosive. Yeah. We will. So that's gene patents. This is a, we haven't done one of these in a while. I'm quite sure we're going to hear from people on both sides of this issue. And we want to. Yeah. I think we did a good job this time of uh, keeping our own dirty laundry out of it. Yes, we did. Kudos to you, buddy. And you. Um, so if you, we have a bunch of stuff on genes and gene patents on howstuffworks.com. Just type in gene patents. It'll bring up a lot of stuff, including a quiz, which you could say is maybe a compendium to this, uh, this episode. Who wrote this one? Uh, I, Michael Franco? 
Really? I, I don't James recognize Franco? the name. Yeah, he does everything. He does. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty good article. But just type in Gene Patton said the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Also, don't forget check out the corporation. Uh, it's just a really interesting documentary. Um, and I said search bar in there somewhere, so that means it's time for listener mail. And this is the winning listener mail. Is it? It's the first one. Really? Yeah. I the hope John you chose wisely. Promised a book too. Yep. the 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 author of this email will receive a free copy, hardcover copy of John Hodgman's incredible book about the end of the world, the third in this trilogy of knowledge, world knowledge, mm-hmm. called "That Is All," which just came out on November first. Hot off the presses. Yeah. And you really should buy it. Yeah. Like, Except for this person. John's a buddy and stuff, but it's a very very fun book. Yeah. It is. Um. All right, I kind of forgot that when I picked this, but I think this Turkish listener is, is uh, he deserves it. So yeah, we'll go with him. The Lucky Turk. The Lucky Turk. Uh, hey guys, listening to you from Turkey. I guess I gave that away. I uh, really love the podcast. Thanks a lot for what you're doing. Uh, this might sound a bit like complaining, though. Pre- oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I prefer that I don't come across as complaining, and I don't know if you even have any more listeners from Turkey. But in various episodes, every time you mention Turkey, like when somebody was stuck in Turkey on the last episode where you were wondering if people can surf on the Bosphorus. 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 It always kind of sounds like you look down on Turkey a bit, to be honest. untrue. Now, we, we talked about being stuck in Turkey and what, how awful that would be. That's, I don't recall that because yeah, I, I would love to go to Turkey sometime. <laughs> I have a friend who played bass in the second most popular Turkish rock band <laughs> in the late 90s. Really? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but Pepsi did a poll of Turks, and my friend's band came in second and most popular. Was your friend Turkish? No, he went to Turkey just for the heck of it. And ended up in the number two most popular rock band in Turkey. That's probably not hard to do. <laughs> See, that's what this guy's talking yes, about right I there. Yes, I know, I know. That's you, Chuck. I'm getting wrapped up in your problems. All right. Sorry to drag you down. Uh, you guys seem to be a couple of people who would like to know the facts, so I just wanted to suggest you check out things like Olu Deniz Turkey, or maybe Fethayet Turkey, or Bodrum Turkey in Google Images. I'm just saying, I don't think anyone would mind being stuck in Turkey, really, if you really know what Turkey was like. And I did look these places up. Are they amazing? Oh, dude. You know, Gorgeous. Turkey also arguably has the world's first city. I can't remember what it's called, but it's old. Just because I felt like I have to say this since I'm already writing an email, there is no surfing on the Bosphorus. <laughs> Not even swimming on the Bosphorus. It's kind of dangerous. Usually it's just bigger ships crossing country that use that, and there are no beaches there. But... Turkey is surrounded on three sides by the sea. It's basically a peninsula, so there's windsurfing, every kind of water sport you can think of on the seaside cities. Uh, in the media, Turkey comes across as if it was a dusty, hot, and primitive country, uh, which I think is what I had been saying. And I should say, when I worked for my last company, which was a chicken software company, one of our clients was in Turkey, and some of our guys would go over there to the chicken farms. Mm-hmm. It was awful, dude. They would come back saying... Please, God, don't ever send me to Turkey again. <laughs> they were in like the awful part of Turkey. They were raising chickens in Turkey? Yeah, yeah. I have to say that, though. Only some small cities on the eastern edges are like that, guys. The people in different clothes are more interesting than people to look at who look like most of us who look like uh, every other European country. 
So the media only reflects the different part. Kind of like only showing rednecks grilling steak on a shopping cart. <laughs> which I've never what? seen. Is that a new thing? I guess so. I'm gonna have to I would it. like to see that. Uh, the rest of Turkey is pretty much like California. Uh, great climate, people, social and cultural, uh, culturally even. Uh, especially Istanbul, it resembles a very crowded San Francisco. Not Constantinople. What with all the hills and the bridges and the hipsters. So that is from uh, Gozde, G-O-Z-D-E. And, dude, you're getting a book, and I am sorry for bad-mouthing Turkey, because I did look at pictures, and it's nothing at all like I thought. I'm not sorry for bad-mouthing Turkey, because I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. It and if I me. did, I was totally joking. Then I feel like I owe this guy a book. Yeah, the only place in the world I would never go is Detroit. i totally go to Turkey. Detroit's awesome. So, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gozda, you get a book, so you, you're going to have to write back in. Yeah, we need your mailing address, Gozda. Yeah. And we should probably make them you know, pay the difference for international shipping. Well, and it's Turkey. It probably just says Gozda Turkey. That's his address. Yeah. Because they're selling Do they even have right, addresses yeah. there? <laughs> we'll just uh, put a bunch of stamps on it and throw it in the water. Exactly. Uh, Gozda, send us an email with your mailing address, um, because we really think there probably are more than one of you in Turkey. Uh, and uh, to all the rest of you who sent in emails, um, thank you. We'll try to read them, but you get notebooks. If you want to get in touch with us, you can on Twitter, SYSK Podcast, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know, and via email at StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?